Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Forum. This is the official podcast of the DLP Forum, the Diplomacy, Law and Policy Forum. I'm delighted to have with us today Mr. Dilawar Khan. Uh, our topic for today is uh, refugees and armed conflict. Uh, Mr. Dilawar Khan is, a, is an expert on, on refugees. He's also an expert on armed conflict. So he brings uh, all of these uh, together. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, so this issue of refugees, it's really come to the fore, especially after the Syrian crisis. And, and there's been so much debate around it. There's been so much discussion, more political than, than legal. But of course, the legal dimensions are critical. And of course, they inform the, the political dimensions. Um, and what we see with armed conflict wars is that there is such massive displacement, both internally within the state, as well as, you know, across borders, refugees and things like that. What I wanted to ask you is, how do we distinguish between these two main categories? One is internally IDPs, internally displaced persons, and then you have refugees who really, you know, our common understanding is, is the people who have left because of armed conflict or something like that, and especially because outside of borders. So how do you distinguish these? And what is the, the legal regime really that applies um, in this context to these uh, different categories? Okay, uh, so recently uh, with all the armed conflicts and the natural disasters, so the IDP is a term which is not specifically only used uh, during the armed conflict situation. Armed conflict situation is one of the situations. Mm -hmm. uh, IDPs can be uh, because of floods, because of earthquakes, uh, because of other internal disturbances. So armed conflict is not the, the sole reason. criteria that uh, IDPs will only happen. And same goes for the refugees. There could be other... but. Uh, based on the international refugee uh, legal regime. Mm -hmm. So refugee, the definition is that any person who has a fear of persecution based on race, nationality, political opinion. Um, so these, there are these five conditions. If because of those reasons, if they cross the border, so crossing the border is the threshold for defining you become a refugee if you leave your country. I see. I so see. unless and until you have not left your country of origin, mm -hmm. as the law says, you cannot be termed as a refugee. So that's one of the fundamental differences that the internally displaced, as the name suggests. So you are displaced, uh, but you are within the country. So maybe you are not in your home, mm -hmm. uh, but you are in your country in your in, in your home country whereas the refugee situation is that you have moved out and you have crossed the international border so okay. that's the kind of the international uh, lining for defining the refugee that you have crossed the international border now of course these two situations both comes with their own challenges um, the idps of course uh, if they are within the country so they fall under the, the the domestic legislation or the or the authorities of the same state, mm -hmm. um, so uh, they are not majorly exposed to international support I uh, see, because I see. Uh, they are in their own country. Um, um, but the if if the country is in a war situation, so now we will go into the, a, a little more detail that if you are in a war situation or it's a conflict situation, mm -hmm. so then the international humanitarian law would apply on the IDPs as well. 
I see, I see. So even in a non-international armed conflict yes, within the borders? Within the borders. Okay, okay. So okay. the IHL would apply uh, along with human rights law. Of course. Uh, the fundamentals, the, the common mm-hmm. areas which are between IHL and the human rights law and the domestic legislation. I see. Because I see. there are there are few fundamental human rights that cannot be derogated at any time and point. That's very interesting seeing seeing so many different layers of, of uh, yeah. you know legal regimes applying to this and trying to negotiate all exactly. of that. Exactly. It's 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 uh, so so it's it's a very uh, the, the challenges are the same. Okay. Like as it, because if you go out of your home and you're no more in your hometown or you have left your homes so the challenges are similar. Mm-hmm. You will be looking for shelter. You will be looking for for a peaceful place where uh, uh, you know you, you you don't have a fear of being killed, uh, or 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 all those fears that as a family or as an individual, if you move out of your home. So the 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 legal regime applicable on IDPs would be if a war situation or conflict situation, so IHL. Uh, along with international human rights law and the domestic uh, uh, legal regime. Okay. And if it's a non-armed conflict situation, mm-hmm. so then the basic human rights and the domestic legal legislation would apply. So in, in, say, a flooding situation, a natural flooding situation. calamity, something like that. So, so, so you, the state needs to uh, provide protection. So okay. because the international regime, which the soul of the international regime revolves around protection. Absolutely. That how the law can come to the assistance of those effectees in order to give them protection. And protection from what? Protection from that their lives are are safe. Mm -hmm. Their dignity is preserved. They get food. So dignity is also part of protection. Yeah. So that, you know, you should be living in conditions which are humane which are according to the basic human rights standards. So a a conflict situation, a non-conflict situation, different legal regime applies. Now, if we come to the refugees, so the refugees, once they have crossed the border, then the protection regime, uh, uh, which is is guaranteed by International Convention on Mm -hmm. the Rights of the Refugees, 1951, with additional protocol. So that is the legal instrument which directly provides protection uh, to the refugees and uh, and 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 many international organizations but primarily uh, UNHCR is the global mandated uh, organization who looks after the protection Absolutely. of the refugees and the same protection regime applies that uh, they should not be exposed to any hostile situation uh, they should be given uh, the, the, the borders must not be closed if if there is a neighboring country and there is a conflict. Mm-hmm. So the law also demands that you cannot block them. Uh, so you allow them. So so people who you can't stop them from escaping. From escaping. I you see, cannot yes, because yes. that's 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 the demand which uh, the, the, this is the principle that in order that they want to leave, you can then because then they uh, then states have have their own own mm-hmm. mechanisms to deal with the refugees. So there are two kind of situations where uh, if the state receives the refugees, either the mass exodus, so a lot of people comes in, yeah. so the status determination becomes an issue because uh, you cannot determine their status one by one because the the, the situation is so big, massive, mm-hmm. that a lot of people come. So in that situation, then the host states uh, they allow them in in big numbers. 
so the ideal situation of the refugee status determination rsd mm-hmm. which the unhcr uh, would term it uh, that cannot happen because there is a conflict on the other side and there are massive numbers coming uh, into the country so you just allow them in and the urgency of the situation in the urgency of the situation Absolutely. but if the situation is such that there are few families coming in then you do the refugee status determination you establish the status i see so I see. it is not that uh, you can just cross the border and you can claim the refugee status I the see. refugee status has to meet certain criteria and 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 the last of just just for uh, you know clarification is an asylum seeker a refugee uh, what is the, okay. the uh, asylum is is you can call that under the udhr asylum is termed as 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 a basic human right okay so it Seeking means asylum. that anybody mm-hmm. can claim asylum but granting of asylum is the prerogative of the state ah i see so it's not that every asylum case would be accepted by the country to mm-hmm. which you are requesting so there is this this very legal thing to understand that everyone Mm-hmm. myself yourself we can claim asylum petition anywhere. for it apply for apply it apply for it because that's application is the basic right human right uh, but then granting or acceptance of that application mm-hmm. is the right of the state yes. because then they have to see conditions that under what conditions and again the threshold the fundamental point to establish is that is there a fear of being persecuted is there a fear to your life because mm-hmm. again if you look at the soul of the international protection regime lies in protection Absolutely. protection from that you should not be exposed to situations which might endanger your life mm-hmm. so keeping that in mind so the evaluators from the state side when they are determining the status of whether an asylum or a refugee so they look into those 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 very detailed points that what made you move because you can be an economic migrant where you had no fear of persecution back in your country absolutely or a certain affiliation to a political group or a certain affiliation to a religious group which endangers your life if you stay there mm. so the evaluators or or the, or the officials who are who are who are evaluating cases so they look into these these details that uh, why the move happened and okay. what you believe actually exists on ground or not so that is the defining structure and every uh, every um, uh, character be a refugee or asylum or idp they are governed mm. by different set of laws i see so I the see. refugees with the refugee convention and the idps with domestic legislation and with udhr and asylums are again domestic laws because uh, you uh, every country has has their own policies of uh, who uh, they will be able because then there are situations which um, as lawyers like ourselves uh, we should look into it that if the state is not giving asylum or protection to the refugees so we also need to establish that whether the state is unable or unwilling mm-hmm. because the, the there are only these two conditions that you have to see if the state is unable that means that situations like refugees 
is considered universally as a as a shared responsibility. I see. So the other states should come and support that state I because see. the state is unable to take care of those people no, because of the course. state may be not economically that prosper mm. to look after additional people. Absolutely. So so you see but if the state is unwilling that's a different story. Yeah. So in recent examples we have seen uh um, few countries they they didn't allow the the Syrian refugees to enter uh Canada had to step in and and uh, open the borders mm-hmm. um so yes there are examples uh where the states are unwilling to um, um to take care of the refugees on on their land and the same Absolutely. countries would be willing to support those host countries who are hosting thousands yeah. and hundreds and thousands of, of refugees Absolutely. no it's, it's really interesting how you how you mentioned that even refugees who are governed by an international regime there is a strong link between the domestic law that then interprets who gets um, you know refugee status how that's determined all of that so that's very interesting to see um my next question i really wanted to look at uh, you know how modern warfare has become this efficient process of you know um taking out the enemy but of course the primary um victims of of warfare are civilians and are people who eventually become uh, refugees um what measures do you feel can be taken to reduce the impact of armed conflict on idps and refugees okay. uh before that um we need to look at the numbers like okay. how many people we are talking about because the numbers would give that would be great, yeah. give give some some reason to the argument Um so there are around 32.5 million refugees around the world wow as of 2022 as per um, the UNHCR data which they yearly share there are some 53.1 million IDPs and uh, there are 4.6 million asylum seekers wow so we are talking about big numbers and 76% of this number is contributed by six countries around the world So there are only six countries six from countries, which 76%, 76% of this number comes are... from these six countries. My God. Uh, Syria, Venezuela, Ukraine, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Myanmar. These are the countries which you can say that they, 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 there were conditions which forced the people to leave their homes. Wow. So of course when these names come, so we know that there are conflict going on. So Absolutely. all are conflict conflict. countries where mm-hmm. a, a, a low threshold or a high threshold conflict is going on or was going on so this is a clear indication that uh, 76% is a big chunk of this number coming from only six countries i, I think in venezuela's case it's it's the collapse of the economy and and a lot yes. of the, the so issues that are happening over there but m- the majority, vast yeah, majority yeah, i think five others, of the other ones are based are, are on conflict. violence and conflict yes. and, and issues there and there are five countries uh who are predominantly shouldering the burden or the or the uh, situation of the refugees such as Turkey uh, um, Colombia Uganda Pakistan and Germany wow. uh, so these are the countries uh, which are hosting uh, a, a, a lot of refugees if we look uh, more into our neighboring uh, uh, issue uh, Afghanistan mm-hmm. uh, so Pakistan and Iran are 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 hosting the majority of the refugees of course so that's that's the number that but, i wanted to but uh, it's very very interesting to see here that 
you know, some of the conflicts that are taking place, whether it's a Syria thing, you have Turkey, fine, that's a bordering country, but none of the others are mentioned in this list, right? Yeah. There are a number of, you know, conspicuous uh, countries that are absent from, you know, shouldering this uh, common responsibility yeah. that the world has to, right. to citizens of the world yeah. um, who are suffering or who are fearing persecution. But we don't see that being equally shared or, or shouldered by by all of these uh, these countries. It's very interesting to to note that. Yeah, and 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 on that, if you if you look at uh, the contribution, uh, so forty six percent of the total funding of the UNHCR comes from the United States. Oh, wow! And United States is only seven percent uh, using uh, those those funds at part of of like. For themselves, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so they are the great, the, the 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 biggest contributors, but at the same time they are the 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 least users mm-hmm. of 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 that fund, uh, which is globally contributed. Uh, so of course, yeah, there are there are countries, and I as I and said, also the the, the interesting de- debates as well that the U.S. might be causing a lot of the refugees. Well, well <laughs> yeah, this is this but is, again, this, this is a, be, a contentious yeah, yeah. issue. So. Uh, we want that. But, but again, going back to, yeah. to, the, to the question, uh, and, it's, and I'm really grateful that you told these numbers yeah. because I didn't yeah. have the yeah. scale in mind, to be honest. But, you know, we're talking about these numbers of, of this scale. How do we reduce, you know, the impact of, of armed conflict okay. on... So uh, if, if the application of law in the ideal world, mm-hmm. so I'm speaking of the ideal world that if the states and those who are uh, instigating wars or conflicts or those who are receiving the wrath of the conflicts, if those states follow the law and abide by the certain principles, like, for example, international humanitarian law, if they follow the cer- certain principles of international humanitarian law, like military necessity, okay. uh, like proportionality, yeah. like principles of humanity, uh, if, if they're mindful of these principles and over 150 years ago when these laws were in process of drafting. So the authors of those laws really did a great job in identifying the the key reasons that if you if you follow those standards. Mm-hmm. So for example, m- military necessity, which means a very targeted approach, uh, humanity, proportionality. So if the civilians are led to believe in conflict situation that they won't be made an object of attack, mm-hmm. And their women and children would be safe because that they are not directly taking part in hostilities. So they are octicumba. So they're not taking direct part in hostilities. So they know their status. Mm-hmm. What they don't know is that whether they will be made an object of attack or not. So under that confusion, so this is a basic human instinct. If you see fear, if yeah. you see a building next to your building, where civilians are targeted, where hospitals are targeted, where mosques are targeted. So all those civilian objects which are made um, an object of attack and disregard the international humanitarian law in, tam- in times of armed conflict, or even in, uh, because if there is a if, if, if these buildings are attacked, so of course it's not a peaceful time. Exactly. Uh, whether it's internal disturbance, again the threshold is so high that we can we can uh, easily uh, qualify it as a non-international armed conflict. Absolutely. Uh, so not going into the debate of whether it's international or non-international, but if the civilian objects are made target, so the civilians that's their fundamental right. Mm-hmm. to leave the place and 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 seek protection i see so first of all they would become uh, internally displaced yeah and then moving from internally displaced they will graduate to another status 
which would be refugee when they cross the international borders. Yeah. So um, uh, to cut the long story short, uh, adherence to law, respect of law, if if it is maintained and if the laws are respected and certain principles, mm-hmm. uh, 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 you know, that civilians should not be made um, object of attack. Yep. Um, and, and, and this is very much uh, uh, provided in, in um, uh, almost all the religious texts, in, 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 all the, the, in all the laws. Uh, so you would see that people who do not fight with you do not fight with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Surah Bakara lays a very fundamental principle. Don't fight those who do not fight with you. Absolutely. So the distinction is very, very clear that you do not fight with those who do not fight with you. Mm-hmm. So in war, it does not say that you don't fight with those who do not who, who fight with you. You fight with them. So the, yeah. the law does not prohibit fighting. What the law prohibits is that those who are not fighting with you, you don't fight with them. Mm. And that's the distinction. That's the clarity if it is understood. Issues such as refugees, issues such as IDPs. I'm not saying that the numbers would come to zero, but we can certainly reduce this number. uh, Because of this massive exodus, people coming out of the conflict zones out out of fear. So, uh, I mean, this discussion really leads me to to think of one thing that, you know, perhaps IDPs are are even more at risk because, um, you know, you can impose international law obligations on a state pretty straightforwardly, right? State ratifies a convention or or custom international law applies to it. The rules apply to it. So IHL, for example, vast majority is uh, custom international law. Um, But when it comes to non-state actors, especially when they're operating within a uh, a state, in a non-international armed conflict, it's very difficult to expect them or or try to ensure that they comply with the, you know, the military's necessity and all the the rules of IHL. So would you think that, you know, IDPs are at more uh, risk than, say, refugees, they have fewer protections? And, And do you think we should continue to be treating both these two categories as distinct categories? Or, or should we, you know, have a have an understanding, a legal understanding of this on more common ground, the fact that they're both displaced people, right? Mm. Uh, something along those lines. Um, I would agree to some extent that, yes, IDPs are more vulnerable because they are more exposed or they are in the theater of the war. Yes. So the proximity is, 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 the, uh, is, is the key line. Yeah, yeah. So the more closer you are, the bigger the challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we take this question very straightforward that, yes, of course, the closer to the fire, the chances of getting burned are higher than those uh, who saw the fire and ran away. Mm-hmm. So they made their escape. Um, but when it comes to the challenges, uh, I have seen situations myself in, in, in my professional career. I have met refugees. I have met IDPs. Um, the situation is very much similar. The trauma that they go through the challenges that they face uh, in terms of women, children, um, um, and even adults, um, uh, the psychological trauma, because Mm. the moment you leave your home, the trauma begins. Oh, absolutely. And then the the mere fact um, that you don't know that where I will land, what will happen with me, the road that I have taken, 
So mm-hmm. these are the challenge, which are the unseen challenges. Like you know, the law cannot, the law can define certain challenges, but the law cannot define the human experience that you go Absolutely. through. Absolutely. So as I said, that the moment you leave home, you just go into different stages where the international legal regime. applies and then changes so you leave your home you are within the country because you are not just come out of your home and you are in a new country mm-hmm. so of course you have to cover a certain journey to reach to the border and the safe borders and then which the might be right across the country right, right. across right. but you know you will you will choose the safest and the nearest yeah so that you can go and seek seek protection of of that country the neighboring country may not be very friendly country mm. that becomes another challenge which takes you to a third country settlement uh, where so you, you travel tra- through you 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 travel through the country you become a refugee uh. but the moment you become a refugee you seek for asylum into a third country resettlement that well i'm not safe even here uh, i made okay. it this far but i need further protection So then, there are mechanism of third country resettlements, and, and I think this is also a case where you know the the second country, the the country that you've just entered, doesn't have a mechanism to give you asylum or doesn't want to give you asylum at all, and so you seek third country. Uh, there could be multiple reasons. Okay. There could be political reasons. The, the yeah. uh, that country may not be politically aligned with your ideology. Uh, of course, uh, 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 maybe the other country. Um, is friends with uh, uh, with the forces of the other country so they would see all the fleeing people as against them mm. so there could be political reasons behind it more than legal uh, there could be economic reasons um, you know a country if they cannot afford uh, uh, additional population to be added to their to their list mm-hmm. uh, so they would make international appeals absolutely uh, for international funding Uh, and then this is how the international funding comes in mm-hmm. so you know this this everything works under once you cross the border this everything works under the international framework absolutely and under the international law so if you are asking for funding to provide protection because you term it as 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 a as as a collective effort of the states uh and it's 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 a shared responsibility for the persons of concern So this is how you 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 handle. So it's not it's not one window operation. Absolutely. You really have to look into different aspects, again with one fundamental objective: protection. Absolutely. Um, another question was, and you know, moving from the the discussion we just had on the international regime, a key component is the International Refugee Convention, of course. But in South South Asia, it's not ratified. I think in any of the major countries uh, in the region. and we have a very serious refugee issue we have afghans in pakistan we have the rohingya uh, from myanmar in in places like bangladesh india even in pakistan as well right do you think that that plays a, a a major role in how refugees are dealt with in south asia um and and can we you know enhance the protections hmm. of refugees in this uh, region okay uh, again uh, there are two ways of looking at it if we just wear the hat of lawyers and mm-hmm. we only speak about the law so of course if you have not ratified an international instrument you are not party to it so you are not obliged mm. uh, to 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 provide those protections but then if you become a good lawyer mm. and then you look into the details and you say well uh, what is the essence of the law why this law is there and what this law says so then you will find some common areas 
within other laws, such as the principle of non-refoulement. Absolutely. The principle of non-refoulement clearly states, which is part of the international customary law, that you cannot force uh, anybody um, back to the country from where he or she fled because that he or she was was facing or feeling a fear of being persecution. So you cannot force them back. So this is the fundamental principle. The that core of the, you know, core the protection. Of the international okay. protection is that you cannot force them back. Non-refer. Right. So and just, non and just for a view, customary international law applies to all states, uh, regardless of whether they've signed a treaty or not. Yes. That is and the, 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 the another angle of looking at customary law is that customary law is there in the domestic legislation in one way or the other, just like UDHR. Okay. So why UDHR is ratified or widely accepted by the entire world? Because the ingredients of UDHR are present in your domestic legislation, Absolutely. so there is no clash. Absolutely. So when there is no clash, then your domestic legislation and the international regime works very well very because true. it is enshrined and from where the national legislations take birth, uh, your practices, your customary acts, your culture, your religion. Mm. So these three, four ingredients make your domestic legislation. And especially in Pakistan, our constitution, for example, the, the human rights things, they're almost, you know, they're very similar language to the yeah. ICCPR, the yeah. UDHR. Exactly. Um, and and, and one, some of the judgments that we're seeing is that, you know, if there isn't a lot of clarity um, in your domestic system, you take the international conventions to read in the rights or the content of those rights yeah, yeah. here. So, so you know, just just supporting your argument, so, absolutely. So it's 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 the case with most of the constitutions mm -hmm. because the constitutions or the domestic legislations they take birth from the state practices because uh, as long as if you have in the true spirit translated the custom, culture, religion, economic status, geography into your constitution. So the laws would be followed by the people for who you make the constitution. Um, now, uh, what difference it makes? Uh, legally, it does make a difference uh, if you are a party or if you are not a party. But let's look into practice. Mm -hmm. Pakistan is not signatory or ratified the refugee convention or the additional protocol, but we are hosting almost 2.1 million refugees on record. Wow. Uh, for example, when I say on record, it's around 1.4 million if the numbers have changed in recent months, mm -hmm. um, but roughly 1.4 million, those who have the proof of registration, the POR cards. Okay. Uh, and then there are 0.8 million uh, who have the ACCs, the Afghan citizenship cards. I so it means this. that these cards were were um, uh, assisted by IOM and the government of Pakistan and um, uh, the government of uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan hmm. who classified these people living in Pakistan, but they are Afghans, right? So if we look at the number of Afghans, we have 2.1 if we strictly divide again. So 1.4 documented Afghan refugees in Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan has no domestic legislation for the refugees. But if you look at the court judgments in 2018 or um, in, in, in some of the cases like uh, um, uh, Saeed Abidi uh, versus Nadra in 2018 uh, or the Zarab Limited company, it was a company versus government of Pakistan. The courts have basically uh, 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 realized or, or in their judgments 
uh, gave reference to the international conventions that well these conventions apply mm. uh, um, to the situations and 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 the judgments are a very clear indication that even if we have not ratified the translation of the conventions in the judgments of through the domestic law you can see that so they're being given effect yes. even if we haven't ratified exactly. them that, that's so that's very hard thing so 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 that's that's the situation so it's it's uh, it's not easy to to you know as i said uh, from the political perspective this question would change mm-hmm. that uh, why pakistan has not signed as a lawyer if you look at it then the definition changes but as we are having a legal discussion i would restrict myself to the legal debate no absolutely and, and uh, you know very well answered uh, very helpful there um there's also the the global compact yeah. on refugees and and do you think that that is also i mean it's soft law it's not binding as such on yeah. states do you think steps like this are also beneficial in the the protection of refugees um you know internationally this this movement that is uh, yeah. occurring very very important and it's a step in the right direction okay. uh, whether as a soft law or as as a diplomatic effort um refugees is a subject again it's a very personal perspective that there are certain issues around the world which like environment mm-hmm. so you really have to work consistently on these issues you cannot say that xyz year was a good year to talk about refugees you talk about the refugees because there are still refugees as we are talking maybe somewhere in the world there are people crossing borders and becoming refugees so it's not something which has 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 ended ended and there's uh, certainly going to be refugees are, in the future of course there will yeah. be refugees in as future. long as there's so, warfare so this any discussion any step or any commitments from the international community or the or the responsible states around the world um they should be welcomed uh, because it is an issue which uh, may grow Mm-hmm. and uh, i would hope that the issue ends and and refugees become but unfortunately um, uh, you know we have seen in the past and 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 the way the human uh, the humans react to the conflicts um, so we will have refugees in future as well so gl- what is global compact so it talks about four key objectives one is ease the pressure on the host countries okay so if we look at objective 1 uh, back in early 2000 uh, the united nations came up with a program called raha uh, refugees affected hosting areas okay so this program was primarily designed because when the refugee situation prolongs so the hosting communities develop a certain degree of fatigue in hosting them mm. because they think that uh the the refugees within our communities are eating our resources i see so for example and these are actual examples so community a thinks that because of the refugees uh, our hospital was good for 300 people now because of them the number have increased to 900 so it oh. has more than doubled uh the resources were available for us as a community and now they're being divided and now they are being given used by a, a community which is not the community that belong to this area mm-hmm. so they then convert the definition of those people as a burden on resources 
I see. Same it. goes for schools. Absolutely. Now you see, it's a very tricky situation. So the host community is hosting a population which is not from the region, and the state is providing the necessary tools for them to survive. So access to health, mm-hmm. access to education, access to basic resources like water, right? Absolutely. But then the host communities look at those resources and see the refugees as a burden. Mm-hmm. So that was an, a concept early 2000s that um, uh, that the amount of funds because it's all about spending. Absolutely. So that the spending of the UNHCR may also consider those communities where there are refugees living, so that they can work with the host communities. So spend a certain amount on the host communities. So that the host communities do not find refugees as a burden, but they see the refugees that because of them, mm-hmm. a certain benefit is coming back to the community. Absolutely. So that was the philosophy. I see. I see. And uh, one of the famous lines that you would see in some leading refugee organizations that Einstein was also a refugee. Absolutely. Yeah. So this means that refugees, not necessarily that they will always come as a burden. There might be some very skilled, talented people that can benefit the the, the country where they are residing. Absolutely. So that is also one. So number one is the pressure on the host country. So that was the background that uh, to help the countries to you know release that pressure. Absolutely. And the pressure is coming from the communities. Enhance refugee uh, uh, reliance. Uh, The third is expand access to third country solutions Mm -hmm. so that the numbers are distributed so that the pressure uh, is released from the hosting country. Support condition in countries of origin um, for return. So this means the pull factors back in the country. So unless and until there there are reasons to believe that the refugees can only return if they do not fall under the category of non reforma and the return is voluntary. I, I see. So yes, it yes, is yes. the voluntary repatriation, mm-hmm. which is a preferred solution. But for that voluntary repatriation, you need to establish uh, a mechanism, an environment in that country, which guarantees that they will be safe upon return. This is going to be exactly my, my next question, in fact, um, is that, you know, Conflicts, it's very difficult to see when a conflict starts, when a conflict ends, right? And and especially post-conflict situations, they're nowhere near how they were before the conflict, right? You have devastation there. You don't have the, the necessary government infrastructure there to be able to support communities. So how do you make determinations of when it's safe to go back, you know, okay. uh, when refugees can return to an area? Well, again, uh, legally, if the conflict has ended, okay. uh, the hostilities if, have if, ended, if the hostilities have ended, so that is the time when you can safely say that now there is no more conflict. I see. And you relate that notion to the principles that the place is uh, now safe. Mm-hmm. So you directly target the principle of protection that there is no more fear of persecution. I see. I see. So that if there is a regime in place and if that regime is looking after the people. So, you know, uh, of course, there won't be any. So legally, you would see that 
the hostilities have ended mm-hmm. because the occupying powers or the two warring factors they come through a declaration or there is a peace agreement so there will be some piece of evidence which will support that the hostilities have ended and and that fear of persecution has diminished well that is a tricky one okay. because we cannot determine that because the fear of persecution is 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 uh, so we start from the communities so if there is a certain community which as a community feel a fear Mm-hmm. that we are a certain community we we will be targeted if we go back say like a particular religious minority religious minority or some okay, right? ethnic or, group or or, like or or a political group okay a political group that was active and that was uh, fighting alongside the others mm-hmm. so the the powerful actors have left but then the less powerful are at the mercy of the others so there could be political reasons and and how do you say in society that now this society has developed evolved it's become enlightened it won't persecute these people anymore you, right you you can't say that it's very difficult you, you can't say that yeah. so it again comes case by case so if they came as mass exodus the I return see. would be one by one ah. family by family so that's why if you look at the UNHCR voluntary repatriation programs so they send families and there was also a program which uh, uh, UNHCR initiated uh, for Pakistan uh, because some people would go and they would come back mm-hmm. so it was not a good value for money by paying them and they would go take the money and come back so it was a burden on on the international funding because ultimately they would come back as refugees absolutely um, so then they started a program which was called go uh, and see come and tell uh, okay so one of the family member would go mm-hmm. and they would see that can we return mm. is it so 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 the the cost was less but when they would come back so they would believe because the the famous ms of communication that what is your message who is your messenger what is your medium mm-hmm. so if we look at those three ms because the the communities would like to go back but they would like to hear it from somebody they trust absolutely somebody they absolutely. know that Very okay the message is that you are safe come yeah. back they say like who is saying this mm-hmm. uh so 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 that defines so it's a very very uh, it's it's not that one size fits all i see so I there see, would be course. people who would rush back to their countries i see immediately like the last bullet they won't wait for the treaty and they would go back voluntarily voluntarily heading back okay because then they will have some very important stakes in the country because the more the earlier you return the better are the chances for the livelihood because you secure the fort you go back and you volunteer your services there I so you see. might join the government you mm-hmm. might join politics uh, because a country after war is um, is is in position to you know uh, reposition their government machinery absolutely so absolutely. many refugees that you see around the world karzai was a refugee in pakistan yeah. then he was a president in afghanistan absolutely so absolutely. so it's not that he just returned to his country he mm-hmm. returned to his country as as one of a uh, very powerful presidents and and often you know in in situations of armed conflict you will have political leadership that is in exile that's in exile and that return. is a, yeah absolutely so, you know it's it's not one fit Uh, uh, fits all. No, absolutely, situation. absolutely. Okay. 
These, these were, you know, uh, exceptionally interesting uh, questions. I think that we went into. I'm extremely grateful to you, uh, the Lavasa, for for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. That's our our podcast um, uh, on, uh, you know, armed conflict and refugees. I think we discussed a lot of different issues in a very short span of time. So, the Lavasa, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you very much for having me. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs>